Hey there, I'm Dana, a registered dietitian and registered dietitian exam tutor. And this is my podcast where we go over all of the questions that have been posted to my Facebook page, Registered Dietitian Exam Study Group with Dana over the past week. And we not only chat about the answers, but why are they the answers as well as answer any questions that students have posted on the page throughout the week. This is a weekly podcast, so be sure to tune in each week for new questions. And of course, I would love to see any of you guys at the live version of this on Sunday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern time. Let's jump in to our questions this week. So in last week's live Wednesday night small group tutoring class, we had a question about ebb and flow. And during the class, we of course went over ebb and flow, but I realized it's definitely a topic that you guys need some more help on. So I want to start out by talking about ebb and flow. And if you're on the Facebook page, I posted the free ebb and flow study guide there. If you're don't, if you're not on the Facebook page because you don't have Facebook, just shoot me an email at Dana J Fryer Nutrition at gmail.com and I'll shoot you the free study guide. So with ebb and flow, a lot of us are comfortable with kind of the base of it, right? That the ebb is right after you've had some sort of injury or insult, and then the flow is that longer duration into your injury. And so when we get questions on ebb and flow, it's really, really easy to go, oh, well, ebb is low and flow, everything is high. But that's not necessarily the case. And this is what this study guide that I gave you guys on the Facebook page is showing you. And this is going to be really helpful to answer ebb and flow questions because the ebb and flow questions tend to be more about like what's high, what's low, would this be present, would this not be present? So with ebb, how I like to explain this is this is when your body's in slow motion. This is occurring right after the trauma. You know, you had a Regina George moment, you just got hit by the bus, and your body's like, oh, we got, we just got hit by the bus. Here, you're going to start to see lots of things decrease. You're going to see temperature decrease, oxygen consumption decrease, insulin release from your beta cells decreased, but you're also going to see an increase in something. You're going to have an increase in stress hormones like your cortisol. You're going to be starting to see hyperglycemia, right? Because if your insulin's low, right, you're seeing hyperglycemia because you're not able to get the blood sugar into the cells. You're having, as well, gluconeogenesis, right, which is the breakdown of fat and protein into glucose. So you're not having insulin. Now you're having more breakdown. So no wonder your blood sugars are high, right? Your immune system's starting to activate. You can see bodies go into lactic acidosis, and then you're also having the start of your hepatic acute phase response. So in general, yes, things like your calories are lower, and you'll start to see a dip in your metabolic rate from that initial injury. Now the flow, what I like to think of this is your body kind of realizing that there's been some sort of trauma. This is kind of your panic mode. Right? And so this typically comes in the first day or two after you've had this insult. First ebb is really within the first hours of injury. So in flow, in general, things are going to be higher, right? So you're going to start to see increased temp, increased oxygen consumption, increased stress hormones, right? But we did already see those increased stress hormones. Now, for the first time, you're having a negative nitrogen balance because your body's in catabolism. You're still seeing hyperglycemia. Insulin resistance now is occurring. You're still having that gluconeogenesis as well as lipolysis, the breakdown of lipids. And then you're having immunosuppression as well. 
And so with ebb and flow, you can see in general, ebb is low and flow is high. But, right, there's some things that are you're going to see, right, you're going to typically see high blood sugars in both, right, both you'd see that hepatic acute phase response. So definitely working to understand ebb and flow is going to be very helpful for you to get questions that are saying, like, which of the following would not happen in ebb, right? So really important to understand. Again, this is why it's great to have a study guide on it. So definitely head to the Facebook page, give a little search to ebb and flow and you will find, and you will find that study guide too. Okay, our next question we have is an 100 gram piece of apple pie has the following macronutrients, 37 grams of water, three grams of protein, we have 16 grams of fat and 44 grams of carbohydrate. What's the energy content of this? And even though this one seems like it is simple, which it is, where I see most people go wrong is forgetting the carbs for fat, right? A lot of the time we're in TPN worlds, right? Where we're thinking, okay, 1.1 calories per milliliter for 10% and 2 calories per milliliter for um, for our 20% and 3.4 calories per gram for dextrose. And when we finally get one where it's just asking us the calories, it can get, you know, tricky. And you don't want to get a question wrong on this exam because you're mixing it up. So for this one, remember protein, whether it's a sandwich, tube feed, TPN, protein's always four calories per gram. So we do three grams of protein times four calories per gram. This is going to be 12 grams of protein. For fat, remember it's nine calories per gram for fat. And we're only using that, right, for our food, not for TPN, as we mentioned. So 16 times nine would be 144 calories from fat. And then for our carbohydrates, right, this is PO intake, so it would be four calories per gram, being 176 calories from the 44 grams of protein. Next up, we have which chemical compound causes irritation that stimulates nerve endings to provide the sensation of the spicy hot. And so here we have the bromelain, we have um, papain, we have um, pepperin and capsaicin. And so a lot of people, when they get these questions, you know, they're food science, but they're kind of more like fact-based questions where, you know, there's not a special way to know these besides kind of seeing the practice question and then going, okay, wait, let me add that to my notes. So these ones you want to make sure, even if you know the answer is D, the capsaicin, you want to make sure you know what the other ones are. And that's a common mistake I see people making on the exam because they're just focusing on like, oh, I know that I know the answer. Okay, move on. But you also want to use each question as an opportunity to understand why it's not the other one. And definitely you're going to see that in this class, but definitely check out the situational practice questions too for more lessons like this. So the bromelain, this one should seem familiar because this is the enzyme from the pineapple, right? This is why if you eat too much pineapple, a lot of the time your tongue can get really, really swollen and irritated because there's so many enzymes in it that can start to break down the protein in your tongue. Now your protein, your tongue's not going to dissolve, but I know I'm a big pineapple fan and there's definitely been times when I'm eating my pineapple, I'm like, oh, all the enzymes are starting to break it down. 
um, lipopane as well is going to be an enzyme, but this is from the papaya. Um, and the pepperin, this is going to be a chemical compound that's found in black peppers, right? You can hear that pepper in the name too. Um, but the capsaicin is going to be the one that's in kind of that, that spicy hot, you see. Next one is calcium homeostasis in the blood is regulated by all of the following except what? So we have our magnesium, we have parathyroid hormone, we have vitamin D and thyroxine. And so with this one, our answer, it should be thyroxine because what we want to be thinking about is thyroxine. This should kind of sound familiar because this is a thyroid hormone, right? This is specifically T4. And right, our vitamin D, our parathyroid are both going to be really essential in helping us regulate our calcium homeostasis. Parathyroid is definitely one where I see a lot of people get questions on this, just in general on the exam. And remember, parathyroid can also be abbreviated PTH. And with parathyroid, you want to think the regular job of parathyroid is that when my calcium, serum calcium is low, your parathyroid's going to increase. This is kind of saying to the bones, like, hello, make sure you release some calcium from the bones. So that's the normal of when there's low calcium, parathyroid hormone will increase. But parathyroid is going to be impacted by, is going to be impacted by renal disease. And in renal disease, you're having really, really high parathyroid hormone. So here you're not really seeing it have that normal response. So we're going to see really high parathyroid hormone, and that's telling the bones release calcium. And so you're going to start to see calcium losses in the bones, which can lead, can lead to bone disease too. Okay, this next one was posted by a student who was more saying like, how am I supposed to know this one? And again, this is a fact-based one which is why it's so important to make sure that you're doing as many practice questions as you can. Definitely Inman is great for practice questions if you have it, but I also really like Pocket Prep. It's gonna be $15 a month, but it has some really great questions on it and really great explanations. So here's the one that tripped them up. So which should be avoided when purchasing bivalve mollus, right? And so if you're not familiar with the word mollus, that is shellfish. So we have shucked oysters, tightly closed shells, open shells, canned clams. And so again, we're looking for which one should we avoid. And depending where you are in the U.S., I know up in New England, we love our oysters and clams. So I definitely am familiar with, you know, them a little bit more than maybe if you're in like Kansas, right? I mean, I don't think you guys have clams or oysters there. You guys let me know if there's any freshwater varieties I need to try when I go south. But so the first one, if you're not familiar with shucked, this is the verb we say when we just like are opening up the oysters, you're taking like a little sharp knife and kind of like scooping it out. Um, so that's regular. That's, that's totally fine. That's how I eat them most of the time. Um, and then canned clams, those are fine, right? If they were not fine, they would, you wouldn't see them sold in the stores. So then we're between, well, should they be tightly closed or should they be open shell? 
And this one, we want to avoid the ones with the open shell because that's not how they should be and the concern is bacteria can get inside the cell. So when you purchase like mollusks, so like mussels, clams, oysters, the shell should be closed. Okay. Next one is also a kind of similar food science fact-based one, which I also find a lot of my students in the South do not know. Maybe so too many exam people are from the North like me, but it's which part of the rhubarb plant can typically be eaten. And so we have flower, root and tuber, stem, or the flower. And so again, this is one where if you're getting this and you're like, Dan, I've never had a rhubarb pie, which I have to tell you, whenever you come to New England, you need to get strawberry rhubarb pie with some fresh vanilla ice cream on top. You can thank me later. But so rhubarb, if you haven't seen a picture, pause now and Google a picture of it. It, you know, it has, it's a plant, but the stem is what we're eating. The stem kind of looks like celery, but it's really sweet. Um, so that's what we're eating. You kind of like slice it up, put it in a pie, hopefully with strawberries. That's the best way. Um, but that's the part you're eating. But again, this type of question, you literally would not know if you're not familiar with it. So the exam is full of these kind of like questions that are very, very fact-based, right? Am I a better dietitian because I know that you should eat the stem of a rhubarb plant? Absolutely not, right? But these are the little things where seeing questions, right, coming to the live, listening to the podcast, doing the pocket prep questions, coming to practice questions with me, you're going to start to see these because you don't want the random questions to be why you're not passing the exam. Next one, which non-essential compound is used to transport non-esterified long-chain fatty acids into the mitochondria for beta-oxidation? We have cysteine, carnitine, choline, or cholesterol. And when you're reading this, where a lot of my students get it wrong, is they are kind of reading, ooh, fat. Ooh, I see cholesterol. But this is the type of question where I want you to break it down and say, okay, if you are only recognizing cholesterol out of this bunch, tell me what cholesterol does. And most of my students will be able to say like, Oh, well, cholesterol, right? Let's say we're talking about HDL made in the liver, right? It's going out to the peripheral tissues, transporting fats from the peripheral tissues in back to the liver, right? And if you're able to tell me that, then you should be able to read this question and say, well, cholesterol doesn't transport long-chain fatty acids into the mitochondria for beta-oxidation, right? So cholesterol should be out. The other one people will pick a lot of time is is cysteine because this one they're like oh that's amino acid like I'm familiar with that but again does this is cysteine a lipoprotein that's moving things around you know it's just an amino acid it's not actually having this function and so then we're between carnitine and choline most of my students I find haven't really heard of carnitine which is fine but then choline right it does have a function with transport of fatty acids, but not necessarily into the mitochondria. So this one is carnitine. And so this is what carnitine does. So where I use carnitine in practice is when I have a TPM patient with really high triglycerides, I'll often add carnitine into the TPM to help kind of shuttle 
helped shuttle some of the fat out of the blood into the cell for utilization. So if you want to be thinking about carnitine, a way to remember is remember carnitine is kind of like the car that's moving the fat into the cell. And carnitine really isn't discussed in a lot of exam resources. So now you have your definition of carnitine, um, of carnitine to work with. Next up, we have another vocab one. So what is the clinical term for dry mouth? We have um, colosis, we have gingivitis, halitosis, and then we have um, xerostomia. And so with this one, a lot of the words you might, again, this, this class is a little vocab heavy, where it's like, what? So again, if you're not familiar with any of them, look it up. Sarcolosis, this is the inflammation of your mouth. And a lot of time you're having that angular stomatitis with it. Typically you're seeing this with B, um, like B vitamin deficiencies. Gingivitis, right? We all know that. I feel like we probably all go to the dentist and they're like, yeah, gingivitis. And you're like, I know, I know, I'll floss. Um, right? So that's definitely not it. And then we have the xerostomia and then halitosis. So the halitosis is a fun one to say to someone to be like, oh my God, I think you have halitosis because this just is the clinical name for bad breath. So xerostomia, that is the one that is actually going to be the dry mouth.
Thanks for tuning in for this week's practice question review. Don't forget that we are doing these live on my Facebook page, Registered Dietitian Exam Tutoring with Dana RD, every Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, and I would love to have you join live. You can also head to my website, danajfnutrition.com, to find out about the latest classes as well as study tips and services. Thanks for tuning in.